The nail in the coffin! Alright, after a week off, we are back in the saddle for episode number 27 of The Nail in the Coffin. Hi everybody, I am Tom Valentino, and I am joined by the multitasking Travis Yuley. Uh, Trav, you have agreed to do a pod tonight as your Blackhawks are in the middle of a Game 7 against the Blues here uh, as we record on Monday night. Uh, how's it going? Uh, they're already down 2 nothing, uh, halfway, well, almost at the end of the first, so it could be better. Um but they're an experienced group, so I'm hoping they bring it back. But uh, did you say episode 27? It is. Jesus. Okay. That's that's a far bigger number than I would have guessed. I know, right? Um, Isn't that crazy? It is. It's insane how fast it's gone. Yeah. Um, well, hey, listen, we got a lot to cover. We uh, took a bye week last week, so um, plenty to catch up on here. Uh, we did not talk since uh, we had basically an entire round of the playoffs take place for the Cavs. They uh, had a, a nice uh, four-game sweep they wrapped up last night. Um, Brown swung a really big trade uh, for the draft um, last week, and the draft itself will be coming up on Thursday night. So we will get into all of that. Um, let's talk hoops first. Uh, Cavs got it done in Detroit um, last night, held on. Finished off the four-game sweep, but uh, I don't know. Was that uh, fair to say a lot more competitive a series than we anticipated? I think so. You look at some a couple of the scores. I mean, there was a 17-point win, a 10-point win in there. Um, I, literally, it felt like, specifically with games two and three, where the Cavs sort of pulled away, every game was close. I, I, I would have to go back and look, but it seemed like halftime scores – we're never more than like two or three points one way or the other. Um, so always pretty competitive games. I think, yeah, I, I don't know how good I really think Detroit is, but they, they sure seem to have a pretty good core to be uh, a pretty talented up-and-coming team in the East. Now, whether that crop they have is good enough to ever be more than, I don't know, like a middling seed that maybe wins a series or two, who knows. But um, – yeah, they played tough, and I don't know. I feel like we may, might have also seen Detroit play a little over their heads, um, which just wasn't really sustainable. I was really impressed um, I, I with with Detroit. I, just in terms of their future prospects, I definitely think they're a few pieces away, um, and they're not a finished product. I, I think they've got a lot of good young guys that uh, have definitely got some room to grow. And I think they're headed in the right direction. And I'll be honest, um, I think Stan Van Gundy is probably the most underrated coach in the league. There's a lot of other guys uh, in other teams that get a lot of praise. Um, in the case of like a Greg Popovich or uh, Steve Kerr, I mean, it's 100% deserved and then some. Um, Brad Stevens at Boston has become kind of a sticking point for me. And I mean, maybe he is great, but I, I don't know. I'm... I feel like the jury's still out a little bit there, but for whatever reason, I feel like Stan Van tends to uh, fly under the radar a little bit, and I thought he got the absolute maximum effort out of that team that you could have realistically expected against a, a far more talented Cavs roster. 
And the Cavs, I mean, they didn't. They, we saw them a number of times this year have bad losses and playing down to the level of their competition. Not once in any of these four games did I ever feel like they were playing down to the level of an eight seed. I really felt like the Pistons were playing much better than what you would expect out of an eight seed. And really, they probably were better than what you would typically expect out of an eight. I mean, they they did win 44 games this year. So um, they, they had a nice season. Yeah, especially an eight seed coming out of the East from what we've seen in, in recent history, at least. Um, yeah, I mean, you can't say anything uh, more about it, really. They played them really tough. Um, th- they've got some gamers. Uh, Reggie Jackson, I mean, for despite his, his comments last night, which came off as a little uh, childish, I mean, it's probably hard, heat of the moment, so I'll give, him, I'll give him benefit of the doubt. I personally don't think it was a foul, but I can understand being salty that he didn't get the call. Um, but they have a lot of guys that I think uh, probably impressed those of us who, I, I don't know about you, but when I looked at the Detroit roster, it was like, man, eh, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of okay players. Um, and, and be that as it may, that's probably accurate, but they played really well together and they had a, uh, probably a more, um, for an eight seed in the East that just got swept, they probably had a more, uh, positive attitude or I'm not even really sure how to say it, but, uh, they probably believed in them in themselves a little more than uh, a lot of teams in that position would. Well, it's funny you mentioned Reggie Jackson's uh, comments about the officiating on that final shot when he heaved up the three-pointer and thought he drew a foul from Kyrie because the league office came out with their uh, last two minutes report for the officials for last night's game. And not only did they say that a no-call there was correct because – Jackson was the guy who dove into Kyrie and initiated the contact. Yeah, he clearly leaned into it. They also said that the play before that, Jackson fouled Kyrie when he was going to the basket. So Reggie Jackson, as far as the league office is concerned, um, uh, his complaints fell on deaf ears. Yeah, he thinks that refs should be, he said, I believe, uh, what refs should be fired just like players can. Yeah. I'm pretty sure players have guaranteed contracts, <laughs> whether they get fired or not. They keep getting paid. Right. At uh, I, I wouldn't hold my breath if uh, if I were Reggie um, for, for that wish. But, uh, hey, let's talk a little bit more about the Cavs here because um, that's our team, and they are moving on. Uh, Eastern Conference uh, semifinal series uh, was announced today that uh, – you know, we know the Cavs are going to play the winner of the Boston Atlanta series, but we now know um, as of today that that series is going to begin on Monday, May 2nd. So uh, one week from now as we record this, but um, I felt like there were a few really big winners um, coming out of uh, that series against Detroit for the Cavs. And uh, first one, um, I think it almost goes without saying Kyrie Irving, you know, uh, you might recall I'd said on here, uh, when we talked uh, last time, I said this might be, given the matchup, a really good series to get him really going. I mean, he's been showing some signs down the stretch of the regular season, and he was going to need to hit another gear in the playoffs. And holy shit, did he ever. Uh, 27.5 points per game, four and a half assists, just one and a half turnovers, and uh, 47% on three-pointers. And uh, he really he hit the dagger in uh, both of those uh, games up in Detroit. Yeah, it's 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 funny because you read that stat line and, and his numbers have definitely been impressive. But truthfully, I'm not even sure they give him enough credit. Um, he had just some 
some incredible spurts where he just took over the games. It wasn't sort of like uh, like a slow, steady build uh, like we typically see out of like LeBron, where you know it's a bucket here, a bucket there, a rebound, assist, blah blah blah. And before you know it, he's got twenty five, eight, and eight. It was legit spurts where he'd score 12 points in a row and just didn't seem to miss and a couple circus shots here thrown up and um, maybe get a steal on on defense and just the way that he was able to uh, really assert himself and kind of go on a hot streak and really set the tone uh, I think was what I was most impressed about because we've we know that he has had that in him in the past um, but we hadn't really seen it as much this year as maybe we had hoped Um, so to see him kick it into another gear I think is like you said exactly what we wanted to see uh going forward he he the thing that was just so impressive to me was just the amount of trust that the team seemed to show in him to really take control of the offense I mean LeBron's numbers in this series were were very good but I just I mean I think I even tweeted something before the third game that I thought once they got on the road that was going to be where LeBron really took over because he has the most experience in these situations. And he really was um, content to play, uh, uh, kind of take a, a secondary role for the most part and, and let Kyrie kind of um, uh, do a lot of the heavy lifting. Which, yeah, I think Love too. I don't think just Kyrie. I think right. Love, his shooting struggled a bit in game four. Um, but overall, he was he was hustling a lot more than we typically see. Um, and he I got banged around a little bit hard, in that last yeah, game, and I think that might have affected his shooting. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, he, it was funny. He, I think the stat line I saw at the end of the first was one for eight shooting and nine rebounds in the first quarter yesterday, yeah. which sort of unconventional, but the fact that they kept going to him um, was good, I thought. And, yeah, overall, I think you're right, LeBron. And, and it might be a little bit that, you don't want to think that he was maybe taking the series for granted or something, but I could see him, you know, saying, I'm going to see if this works. Um, if it were, I don't know, maybe a finals game or something, he wouldn't be trying necessarily as hard to get other guys involved and in deferring quite as much as we saw him. Um, but yeah, when they, I think when he drew up that play, well, I don't know who drew it up. We'll assume Ty Lue drew it up, I guess. Um, at the end of game three on Friday that ended with Kyrie hitting that huge three. Um, the excitement on his face, I think was, was probably the biggest takeaway I think from the series, the fact that he's okay with these other guys getting off too. That whole sequence was really telling and, and it really gave me a good feeling about where the Cavs are at. And uh, you know, I mean, obviously they're going to have to face a, a lot more adversity, as we get deeper into the playoffs here and, and it's going to put things to the test, but um, just the fact that they drew up a play there where they really needed a basket and they didn't draw it up for LeBron and they were okay with it. They executed it perfectly and, and Kyrie made the shot. And um, I, I, like you said, that, uh, that reaction from LeBron, I, I said, um, that uh, his reaction, if you remember at the end of game two of the finals last year, when uh, they they got the win and he like spiked the ball down and just kind of had that, that roar. I said that was like the enduring image for me of that whole postseason because he just looked like such a badass. Um, and uh, just his like over-the-top celebration 
for uh, Kyrie making that shot on Friday night. I mean, it wasn't quite the same thing, but it was certainly something very memorable to me because it really felt like kind of a watershed moment for them that you you really saw that um, you got another guy here who's uh, capable of being a, a legit killer, I guess, in the postseason. And um, yeah, he seemed really genuinely happy to, to have that. And it, for um, it, as difficult as a process as it's been, and we all kind of wonder like what LeBron's doing with trying to lead this team. Is he going about it the right way? And, and, you know, are these guys meshing this, that, and the other? And it really felt like that was the moment that like, yeah, they're all on the same page and this is legit. Yeah. It was really the first time we saw them. Like, um, I I don't know. It, it just felt more genuine than when they've celebrated in the past. I think particularly the big three, um, because they all looked at each other. They all were excited. It didn't matter who took the shot. Um, all that mattered was that it worked and, you know, that they, they did what they had planned to do. They drew up something and I, it, it definitely involved LeBron. Clearly LeBron was pulling a double team there that was designed to get Kyrie open over there in the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I mean, when's the last time we saw LeBron as a legit decoy? Um, I can't recall it. And it's the first time I think really since he's been back that we really, I don't know, I really got the feeling that LeBron accepted um, Kyrie and Love as those other two guys as opposed to just two other guys. Well, they had, I mean, they were given an opportunity and they seized the the brass ring. I mean, they they stepped up uh, right from the very beginning of the series. I mean, game one last weekend, it... um, they, they both looked phenomenal, and I think they were both, Love and, and Kyrie both were um, really integral parts of what the Cavs were doing throughout that whole series. And, um, you know, I, I, it kind of leads me into the next point that I want to make. Um, I think the other big winner that came out of this first-round series was uh, was Ty Lue. Um, I, I know a lot of people uh, were kind of questioning his rotations. Uh, I certainly have been, but... Um, I think that uh, the way he handled the Cavs rotation, and there was definitely the head scratcher early on in the series with uh, trying to force Mozgov in there off the bench when he clearly was going to be a liability. I mean, but to lose credit um, by game three, all those minutes were going to Channing Fry. Um, Did Mozgov even get on the floor yesterday? The last two games, I don't think he played at all. Okay. I mean, uh, yeah, I definitely didn't notice him, but yeah, his minutes went down in game two, and plug him in to foul uh, Drummond every once in a while. No, I don't think so. But um, you know, I I think just getting back to Kevin Love, I I think his ability um, to to play in the post and um, have some success at the five really kind of uh, changed what the Pistons wanted to do, and I think what Lou was able to do from a, a tactical standpoint, it really, I mean, it handcuffed Stan Van Gundy into basically um, having uh, Andre Drummond just unplayable for um, most of the fourth quarter and some other big stretches of the game um, using the hacking strategy. Um, but, I mean, even beyond that, I know especially like early on in the series, when uh, when he moved uh, Lou down to the five, or I'm sorry, when Lou moved uh, Kevin Love to the five, um, that sort of drew uh, Drummond out from the paint and it opened up some driving lanes. Um, so it kind of 
neutralized Drummond's effectiveness there. And I mean, that's their all-star and um, to be able to take out a piece like that for the opponent, that was a really big deal for them. And, um, and again, like the, the, the play he drew up at the end of game three um, and just uh, the other thing that I thought he was kind of guilty of at times during the regular season was um, a lot of situations where things were starting to get away from the Cavs. He was a little bit too fond of the move where you just kind of uh, uh, let them uh, let them play through it. And he did not really do that at all in the playoffs. He, he so far from what we've seen, he's really done a good job. I think of, of cutting off uh, runs by the opposition as soon as they get going before it gets out of control. And um, I thought that was uh, his timeouts and his use of timeouts were uh, really well done. Yeah. Regarding Drummond, I think um, not to backtrack too far, but he um, he's it's frustrating because I'm, I'm, I'll admit, watching the guy go to shoot the free throws, I realize it's a great strategy for the Cavs in certain instances. And overall, it is a good recipe to win. And I'm not even really suggesting that the league change the rules. Um, but when I watch him, just he looks so defeated. And yes, he was our opponent, but I felt I feel legitimately bad for a guy who knows that he's just going into a situation that uh, – he's incredibly uncomfortable with and he knows that he can't really do anything about and some of those misses are just so like so insanely bad that it's just got to crush a guy that's you know expected to be a leader on his team and he just can't seem to do anything to get over this hump um yeah from the sounds of it he's certainly put putting the work in to try to uh, improve his free throw shooting and it's just not happening for him yeah i would think so and i mean it's not it's not like he's he's just bad he's historically bad like considerably worse than the guys that we look at as the guys that were the worst free throw shooters like tristan thompson was i want to say like third or fourth from the bottom of the league andre drum is 25 points lower than him percent wise it's unbelievable it's insane how bad he is it's not like like Shaq was 53 54 percent and we all looked at him oh he's terrible Andre Drummond is 36%. It's it's it, it's unlike anything we've seen before. And, and we've said in the past, like, um, you, you maybe start shooting underhand, do something. To be honest, whatever he has to do, it's got to be better than what he's doing. Like, I understand you, your pride might take a bit of a hit looking like a goof up there shooting weird, but you got to be pretty embarrassed now. Like how much lower can you get for the record? I, I understand the, and I hate the idea of rewarding guys and, and bailing out guys who can't shoot free throws. Having said that, I hate watching these games turn into free throw contests. And it's, it seems like there are multiple teams now that I've got a guy that's notoriously bad at free throw shooting and it's becoming way too big a part of these games, whether it's uh, Drummond with the Pistons. You've seen a little bit of that with Tristan, although teams don't do it too much, but uh, DeAndre Jordan with the Clippers. Um, I know the Warriors have even got, um, is it, uh, is it, is it, uh, Azili or, or, or I Iguodala? I think Iguodala's had issues with free throw shooting. I just, I, I, I hate that strategy just from an entertainment standpoint and as a basketball fan, it's not very fun to watch. 
Um, and, and I do hope I, I, I would, I know the Cavs have come out against it. Me personally, I, I would like to see something done about it after this year. Yeah. I, I'm sort of torn on it. I think because if, if, if you're that bad, it's something that is so fundamentally like important to the game. You shouldn't be able to just skate by. <laughs> you don't deserve to be bailed out. Right. I, I totally exactly. agree with that. Exactly. But like I, as a fan and a paying customer, deserve to be bailed out. That's a, that's a fair point, although you didn't pay a dime for that game. Okay. Not that one. <laughs> but, but, no, I know what you mean. It's like I, I'm, I'm torn on how to handle it because I don't want someone who, like, you're, it's it's the NBA. It's not high school. It's not They're not kids. They're, they're grown-ups getting paid to do a job if you're that bad at your job get off the floor like that's it's not the other team's job to you know protect you from something you're horrible at um i mean because there's there's other things that guys on the floor aren't that good at like Kyrie irving is small and he can't rebound so should we give change the rules to give him an advantage there just because this is much more glaring obviously um, example. I don't know how to fix it, but I'm also not, I don't want to see them just come out and turn it into an automatic flagrant or something like that, where it's two shots in the ball um, and just completely take those guys off the hook from something that you should get better at. Reading the comments from commissioner Adam Silver from the last few days, I suspect something's going to be done over I the summer. I fully expect they're going to come out with something. I do. I don't know what um, it's going to be, what yeah, they're going to settle on, but I do think something. In the more immediate future, though, we, as we said earlier, um, semifinals, the Eastern Conference semifinals for the Cavs are going to start on Monday. Uh, it's going to be either Boston or Atlanta. Uh, Hawks had a really great chance to go up 3-1 in that series before they um, – Frankly, they kind of pissed it away last night and had quite possibly the worst uh, play out of a timeout um, at the end of the fourth quarter that I've ever seen watching the NBA. Oh, my God. Um, used to complain about the Cavs stanky leg. That thing was just, oh, my goodness. I don't know what Jeff Teague was doing. You you cannot tell me that uh, Coach Budenholzer for the the Hawks, that's what he drew up. I, I cannot believe that because that was a train wreck and. You know, it got away from him in overtime. So that series is now a two to two, heading back down to Atlanta. Uh, let me just ask you: Do you have a preference for which team you'd like to see the Cavs match up with next? Yeah, probably Atlanta. I honestly think we're a little bit in their head after last year, um, in the playoffs because they came in. I think thinking a lot, high, lot more highly of themselves than uh, the Cavs thought of them as they swept them and dispatched them after they won, what, 66 games or something. Um, so, truly, I think Atlanta. Um, also, Boston, that series just – I'm not worried about losing a series to them. Um, I am worried about losing players to them. Um, we saw it last year with Kevin Love, and they're just a team that could beat you up, and they – not even – I don't know. They're just one of those teams that, like, they're – no, I don't want to say they're dirty, but they're sloppy and physical, sort of like, I don't know, they just go throw themselves around, and I think they've gotten away from it a little bit. Um, I haven't watched all of their games, but um, I haven't really seen Olenek on the ice, or on the ice while I'm watching hockey. My mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen Olenek on the floor like at all in the, in the parts of those games that I have watched. 
So I think he's out for that whole series, and uh, Avery hurt? Bradley is down for them as well. Oh wow! Okay. So um, I will say, I the biggest thing that I hate about Boston is it has made me hate like uh, Solinger and Evan Turner, <laughs> two two good Buckeyes who I loved in college. They're just like like Solinger's a flopper, and he whines so much, and Turner's even worse. I can't stand watching him play. Um, I do like Isaiah Thomas. I like the way he plays. Um, being a little guy, I can respect uh, respect his hustle. But um, overall, I I just feel like we got a mental advantage against Atlanta that um, Boston's just a little more carefree. Although to be fair, I wouldn't see us losing more than one game to either one of them. I would predict, and and I think we're going to try to hopefully get one more pod on. Um, before that series starts, we'll we'll see how it goes this weekend, maybe. But um, if I'm making any kind of a prediction now, just to get something on the record, I would still pick the Cavs to sweep either one of those two teams. Um, I think Atlanta's got a lot more talent on their roster, especially when you're factoring in health right now. Um, but like you said, for whatever reason, the Cavs just seem to have a have it. Um, a real mental edge on them. And I mean, you just look at certain players on the Hawks and uh, like Paul Millsap as an example. I mean, if you only watch Hawks games when they're playing the Cavs, you would think Millsap kind of sucks and he's a great player, but for whatever reason, Tristan Thompson just eats him alive every time they play. And I mean, that's the most glaring example, but um, Horford's a complete non-factor when we play them. Yeah, he hasn't really done much either. But he's about it. He seems to match up pretty well um, with Kyrie usually. But he never—I mean, he never takes over a game, and no one else seems to contribute much of anything. Uh, Horford's sister makes a bigger impression than he does when we play. It seems like, (laughs) Um, and I, I say that only half jokingly because I didn't realize until last time we played them at the end of the season that she still like passionately tweets about the Cavs when we're playing them. She um, tweets about the Cavs when we're not playing all the them. Time, all the time. It, it's unhealthy. It's, it's insane how much she's obsessed with the Cavs. Kind of funny, um, but also pretty pathetic. But I digress on that one. Um, no, there's no one on that team that really seems to show up and worries uh, worries you when the Cavs play the, uh, play the Hawks. Boston, I don't know. I mean, there's no one on that team that really scares me either. Um they're just one of those teams that I feel like could beat you up a little bit. And that worries me. I just, I want them to do what they're doing now, which is get out of the series healthy and rest up. Yeah. So we'll see where that goes. The the last one thing I wanted to to talk NBA with you, we got the word today on Steph Curry's injury. Did you see the, uh, the play where he went down yesterday at Houston? I did. He looks, it looked like he just slipped on a wet spot. Yeah, I think um, I think it was Monty Utis from the Rockets who had uh, slipped and fall. Uh, he went down and left a wet spot on the floor. And just in the course of play there, they never had a chance to come out and mop it up. And uh, Steph went, went down and real awkwardly banged his knee on the floor, and he did the splits. And so they're, they're saying it's a grade one MCL sprain. And it was kind of interesting the way it seemed like everybody rushed to try to interpret what those results meant because the initial word we got was that he'd be out for two weeks and then other people interpreted it as he's going to be out for at least two weeks. 
Um, and then just kind of reading some of the quotes from their GM. Honestly, I don't think they know. I, I, I think they just have no idea where this is at. And they threw out the two-week timeline just because they were asked to put a number on it um, as a PR move, if, if nothing else. And yeah, I think what I heard was they're planning to reevaluate in two weeks, which, um, I mean, it sounds like it's just a, uh, a security thing. Um, sorry, I just celebrated. We just tied it up. Go Hawks. Wow, um, that was yeah, quick. Yeah, nice little power play goal. Um, but anyways, um, it sounds like they're going to reevaluate in two weeks, which they should ideally have at least a week off before they start playing again anyways. So assuming their next series is against, what, Clippers or um, Portland Blazers, um, they'll probably be one or two games in when they reevaluate. Um, but I'm not so sure, like – I mean, truthfully, I have a hard time thinking if he said, hey, let's check it out now um, in a week and a half, I think I'm ready to go. I I don't think they would say no to that. (laughs) You know what I mean? But, I mean, he's their entire team. There's no way they get past San Antonio without him. Um, They're a good team. I could see them beating Portland or the Clippers without him. But for what they they have in mind – he's got to be there for it. So maybe they do write it out. Maybe they're that, that much uh, more confident in themselves in, in relation to who they're playing. I have a feeling if they were playing San Antonio, they'd probably just have him as day to day and keep an eye on him. I would say you're half right in your assessment of their team. I, I think that um, they cannot win the West if he's not back especially for the conference finals. That said, um, where I disagree with you is I would not say that he's their entire team. I I do think, and it was a pretty strong statement that they made yesterday that when he came out from halftime, tried to warm up, couldn't go, and they rolled him out for the rest of the game, that that third quarter – the uh, the Warriors blew the doors off the Rockets. It it was like 41-20 to in the third quarter alone. I will uh, counter that with the Rockets are probably the softest, most mentally weak, uh, supposedly uh, elite team that we've ever seen. That team is full of frauds, and if I was a Rockets fan, I'd be ashamed to have those guys on my team. Every single one of them has no heart whatsoever. How bad was it on Thursday night when Harden made that game winner with like two seconds left and they showed the bench and there was like one guy cheering and the rest of them looked like, are you shitting me? We're actually going to have to play a fifth game. Okay. Full disclosure. I actually didn't think they were, I didn't, I didn't get that from it. I really, I I think they're guys that truthfully just didn't really think they were. I mean, golden State still had three seconds left and they were getting the ball advanced to half court. So you can't be jumping out of the gym, celebrating that basket there. You could be um, happy you scored. If you look, if you look, um, Dwight Howard has his hands like tied up in his shirt, kind of, and he does a, a he does a little fist pump there. It's it's very reserved and calm, but um, truthfully, I got the feeling he was like, okay, they hit this. Now let's hold them. We still we still need to play defense and hold them. I didn't get the feeling that they were as disappointed to see it go in as a lot of people said, and this coming from a guy who, like I just said has no respect whatsoever for the Houston Rockets. So um, I I don't know. I guess we can – it's always one of those images that I feel like we're going to look at and sort of interpret that way. But 
ultimately, I don't think it, it really tells the whole story. Well, regardless, I, I think the Rockets are going to be uh, blasted off into space here in Game 5. And um, Steph or no Steph, I think the Warriors are, are going to uh, send them packing quite comfortably. Sure. And yeah, I, I get, I'll step back my statement a little bit. I'm not sure that was really what I meant to say, that they're that they're nothing without him. But they're certainly, I don't think they're a championship contender without him. No, not with with um, San Antonio. I don't sure working there. with Oklahoma City either. Right. I, I just, that's the thing. The, the, we talked about the Eastern Conference, the bottom of the Eastern Conference being so much better than it's been in years past. The top of the Western Conference, you've got, it's a three-team race out there. Two um, and a half. Yeah. I'm not even sure Oklahoma City's in the same class. I, I, I'll throw them in there just because I can't totally write off a team with Durant and Westbrook. Agreed. But two and saying two and a half teams is probably fair. Um, but the, the the bottom of the West, and I think that's why the Western Conference first round is kind of sucked um, overall. But the top of the Western Conference is exceptionally great, and it's I mean the Warriors obviously set the regular season wins record, but um, just having San Antonio lurking. I think there were other years when Golden State without Steph Curry might have been able to get out of the West, but this is not the year for that. So we'll see what happens. I, 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 I'm going to be shocked if we don't see Curry playing again by the Western Conference Finals. I just I can't imagine him missing that much time. That said, though, I mean we saw it with Kyrie last year. He missed a bunch of games um, even before he had the big knee injury in Game One of the Finals. Um, I mean, he was battling it. It never really totally went away. And, I mean, who's to say if if Curry comes back here? I mean, even before he injured his knee on Sunday, uh, he was not playing very well in that first half. He was not shooting well. He wasn't coming off screens like he normally does. Um, and, and the foot and ankle problems that had started surfacing earlier in that series um, were definitely looking like they were giving him a bit of an issue. So, he uh, even if he gets back on the floor, I'm not sure we see him at totally back to 100 percent the rest of the season. Sure, I think that's fair. Um, I don't know in, in terms of who you were just talking about in the West. I think you're right on with the two and a half teams, um, two to three teams, depending on how you want to look at Oklahoma City, because no one seems to put them in the same class. But does it surprise you a little bit that the Clippers aren't in that conversation? No, I don't think they belong I, in that the way that they play. But when you look at the talent they have. They, I feel like they should be. I look at them in the exact same light. They're a better version of the Rockets. I, I just, I think they spend way too much time complaining about the officials and and just everything else out the conspiracies against them. And and I just, I, I, I mean that the nucleus of that team has been in place now for I think this is their fifth year, and they haven't even gotten to a conference final yet. I just, it ain't happening for them. Um, and it, that, that's, it's weird. Cause you look at these teams, like you look at Houston and you look at uh, the Clippers and you look at the guys that they have. And in theory, they should have this great core, but you look at it and you're like, you have these guys and you have no chance. Yeah. These just aren't guys that are ever going to do it for you. Yeah. I've just, I've never really been a believer in the Clippers. And I, I don't think it's an accident that every time the Cavs play them, they, tend to smack the Clippers around with, with little difficulty. Um, I, I just, I, I'm not a believer in them, and I, I think they'll probably get by Portland 
in the first round, although, you know, I think we got game four of that one uh, coming up a little bit later, and, I, and Portland got back into the series uh, winning game three, so that's a two-to-one right now. Um, I, I do think the Clippers will get by there, but I'll be honest, I, I still think Golden State could um, dispatch the Clippers with or without Steph playing at all in that series. I, I think they might have a puncher's chance now, uh, L.A., but I don't think they're going to beat the, uh, the Warriors. Yeah, I agree, probably. Um, just because, I mean, Golden State, the the system they have in place and the way that they're coached and the way that they're run, um, it that part doesn't take a huge hit by losing Curry because every guy still knows what their role is. They know their position. They know what they need to do. So they can still operate. Obviously, they're going to lose some of that uh, that shooting, uh, that shooting stroke that they have with him, and they need to adjust a little bit. So, but overall, I think they're still just they're a better operating team even without Curry. I think than the Clippers would be. Um, I do. I guess the one thing I said to one of my buddies today is it's it's uh, it's like Cleveland's luck that uh, Curry couldn't hurt himself a month from now at the beginning of Game One of the Finals. Um, <laughs> where we can actually benefit from it because uh, I don't know that Golden State is that much harder of a matchup than San Antonio. Um, So truthfully, I don't know that it benefits the Cavs that much now. And selfishly, that's how I look at everything that happens in the playoffs right now is how does this benefit the Cavs? (laughs) Well, I'm never going to cheer for an injury, whether it's now or a month from now. And I I mean, really, if you're the Cavs, you got to handle your business and, um, Miami was really the only team in the East that scared me, although they just lost again at Charlotte. So that series is now two to two, a little bit of the lusters come off of their team. But, um, I mean, if you're the Cavs, I mean, just knowing what happened to you last year with, with the injuries piling up and, and knowing how quickly that can happen. Um, I, I think you just got to handle your own business and whoever they throw out in front of you to play the next series, you, you deal with it. Um, and you you can't, I mean, it feels inevitable that the Cavs are going to be in the finals uh, against um, either San Antonio or Golden State. Um, but, I mean, you got to get there first. And there's a lot of, there, there's eight more wins that need to happen um, for the Cavs before we can start um, honestly and fully talking about um, a finals matchup, whoever it's against. Yep, I agree, and I th- I think they have that focus. I think we saw that because they were. I mean, they're clearly the more talented team than Detroit, but they weren't. They didn't let the uh, they didn't take that for granted. I think when Detroit played them tough, they stayed they stayed focused and they stayed the course. I think so. It's good to see that they seem focused um, going forward. So I guess we just got a week off to rest up and uh, get ready for whoever we have in round two. Yeah. Hey, speaking of staying the course, um, how about the Browns? Uh, speaking of teams that don't have to worry about losing in the playoffs, how about the Browns? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's an even better segue. But uh, no, I'm going with staying the course in that um, they have a rebuilding plan in mind and um, they know what they need, which is basically everything. First and foremost, being a quarterback and yet. Uh, when they were in position to draft one of the top two quarterback prospects, they decided last week that they still wanted to trade down um, to the number eight pick um, overall for uh, this year's draft. And they got a whole uh, boatload of picks um, for this year and in future drafts um, from their trade with the Eagles. So um, 
where we sit right now, and I say right now because it's entirely possible, if not probable, that the Browns are going to trade down again. But at least for right now, we're looking at the eighth pick overall and six of the top 100 picks this year and three picks in each of the uh, first two rounds or three uh, three picks in the first two rounds for each of the next two drafts. So next year, I think they've got two ones and one two. And then for 2018, it's the reverse. They've got one first round pick and a pair of second round picks. So all that in mind, how did you feel about that trade when it came down last week? Personally, I like it a lot because for the reason you just said, they, they need a lot of players and this allows them to get more good players now. Um, it also tells me that they looked at the quarterbacks in this class and said they're not in love with either of those top two guys. And they're not just going to do it because uh, the mock drafts say they should do it and because they think the fans want them to do it. They're, they're staying uh, true to their board um, and they're, they're going to try to get the guy that they want, whether it's, I mean, I, I fully expect them to draft a quarterback. I don't know which one. Um, there's a lot of smoke coming out now that Hugh Jackson actually loves Paxton Lynch, which if that's the case, then this move is great because he should still be able to get him. If he doesn't, eh, that's that's sort of another story. I think I don't I don't see him going before eight, but I guess anything's possible. Um, it is interesting to me how wildly divergent the opinions are on these top two quarterbacks because, I mean, obviously Tennessee didn't need a QB after they drafted Mariota last year, but the Browns very much need a quarterback and they traded out because they were that convinced that neither one of those guys was worth taking regardless of who went number one. And, or, or maybe they felt that Goff was going to be the guy and he was a viable player for them, but they knew they wouldn't get him. Whatever the case, they had an opportunity Um, And they said, no, thanks. And there are other teams that wanted to trade up and and mortgage their futures in order to get a shot at these guys. Yeah. um, Being able to, that's a tough decision when you're a new regime coming into such a quarterback starved franchise um, and having the option to get uh, one of those two guys who I think most people are pretty much considering a wash at this point. Uh, Goff and Wentz people seem to be just treating like, hey, if you polled 100 people, you'd probably hear, I don't know, 55-ish that pick Goff and the other 45 that prefer Wentz. So the fact that they were able to say these two guys, we're not really crazy about either one of them. We think we can get more for our money down here um, is is a shrewd move, and it really plays into, I think, what, sort of what we expected from this, uh, this analytics movement, though. Um, so... It, I'll be honest, I didn't expect it, but I kind of hoped for something like this. And I was I was happy once I saw it come down. I think it's a great move for them. I'm on board with it, too. I was shocked at first, but um, I, I, like you said, they've just got so so damn many holes to fill. And, and the other thing, and I know a lot of people tend to cringe because pretty much every single time they've ever traded down in the past, it's blown up in their faces because you see star players that they could have had. And instead they went for quantity over quality and, and the quantity picks never panned out. And they've got all these guys that and nothing to show for it. And um, 
I know it sucks, and I know we say this every time a new regime comes in, but you you just you can't hold the mistakes of the past regimes against these guys. Uh, let's give them a chance to screw up on their own, and maybe they will because everybody else has. I don't know, but at least for now, um, I'm willing to give them a shot. Um, I think it's admirable that knowing how important a quarterback is and knowing how badly they need one, that they are willing to trust their instincts here and, and still make this trade. Um, Absolutely. That's exactly, that's exactly how I feel about it. They're that's, it's a tough call and it's, it's a tough one to sell to your fans and they're, they're just coming out and saying, Hey, we're, we have this, this is what we believe we're willing to stand by it. Who do, do you think they're going to make a pick at number eight? I think it depends who's there. Um, I think, I don't know. I've been sort of running these scenarios over in my head, um, assuming that the quarterbacks go one and two, which I think is sort of a given at this point. Um, there's really, I think, a crop of like six guys who are in that next tier of players. Zeke Elliott being one of them, who as much as I love him, if he is the one that's remaining, I'm, I'm not sure I want them to take him um, just because because they have so many needs and we all know shelf life for running backs is short. Um, so it's like by the time the Cavs are good or Cavs, by the time the Browns are good, is Zeke even still going to be productive at that point? Um, I'm not, I'm not totally sure. I want them to take one of those top defenders. If none of those are there and they have like a uh, Tunsil or Elliot to pick from, I'd rather they trade back down to some team who wants them. Ideally, I would. I think I'm probably leaning towards uh, DeForest Buckner or Joey Bosa. Hmm. I don't think Joey Bosa will still be there at eight. You'd be amazed. I wouldn't have thought so either, but I've seen a lot of projections that have him going around 10. Which really? I never would have expected. I can't imagine he's going to get past the Ravens. It just yeah, feels like that. That breaks my heart, too. I know. It hurts. It It, it is, uh, as much as you hate seeing... Uh, the Buckeyes uh, playing for Boston. Uh, same thing with seeing uh, Ohio State football players uh, going to the Ravens. Or the, I mean, I should be immune to it at this point with how many Steelers um, or former Buckeyes. But you know, Bosa in a Ravens uniform feels both inevitable and horrifying to me. Yeah, I remember saying like after uh, after Baltimore won a game late in the season, I'm like, thank God they'll be too low to get Bosa. And then somehow these jabroni quarterbacks played their way up to the top of the draft. <laughs> and somehow it looks like he still might drop to him, which uh, I'm going to be furious. Your your case against drafting uh, Ezekiel Elliott, I, I'm not going to disagree with any of it. That said, I, the, he's really an intriguing player for me just because um, he does so much more than just run. Um, and just carry the ball. And I mean, he's a fantastic um, uh, rusher and, and you need somebody like that. And I don't think um, the Browns have that guy right now. Um, maybe Duke Johnson can be um, a, a contributor on a good team, but I mean, I, I'm not basing my whole offense around him. And um, But the, the thing with that makes Zeke so interesting to me is that he can catch the ball out of the backfield and he can block really well, um, picking up blitzers, which um, 
you look at how much the Browns have lost off their offensive line. I just, I feel like he's the kind of guy that can cover up a lot of sins um, elsewhere on a very thin roster and a thin offense. Yeah. I think the thing you, you said it and I don't think people really realize it as much because he didn't catch a whole lot of balls. Um, but he can catch the ball out of the backfield. But what really set him apart last year was his blocking. His pass blocking was incredible. He actually graded out. Um, and I don't put a ton of stock into these stats in general, these these general metrics that you see on like pro football focus and whatnot. But he didn't miss a block all season. He graded out 100% on that um, on that part of his game. And he and he had to do it a lot. It, it, was, it wasn't like... Um, you know, he, he, he had to block 20 times and blocked them. He, he was blocking several times every game. Um, he, he can do it all. And a lot of times, at least lately with these top running backs, they run the ball well, and that's about it. Um, he really is a rare breed, I think, in terms of pro prospect for running back and that he can do everything you want him to do at the next level. He's a true three down back and you just don't see him very often. Um, I think the fact that we saw what Todd Gurley did last year for St. Louis, um, now L.A., um, that maybe it, it helps Zeke out and people think, hey, maybe you can still do that in the NFL. Yeah, that that's kind of what I'm banking on. So I, I, I totally understand the argument against not, him. Yeah, and to, and to the, sh- the short shelf life is obviously the biggest concern and why it's become so rare that a running back gets drafted that high. But... Um, boy, that skill set, man, it's, it's tempting. And it's, it's the reason why if they were to pull the trigger on him, if they're in position to do that, I, I can't get that upset to be, yeah, to be clear, I'm not going to be upset if they do. Um, it just kind of worries me, I guess is all. I don't know that. I almost think if he's there, they might need to trade down as well. Um, just because I think there's probably some team that's a little closer to being good now that would, uh, Give give up quite a bit for a guy that can really bring that much. I think whoever gets him is going to love him. I think honestly, I think he's probably a lock for offensive rookie of the year, and that's obviously getting way ahead of myself. But I think he's a guy that's going to come in and make a huge difference from day one wherever he goes. Full and disclosure: if that's, if that's Cleveland, I think he would do the same thing here. Hmm. Full disclosure: I will say that um, I thought Trent Richardson was going to be an amazing running back when the Browns drafted him. So I might not be the best. Um, judge of uh, running back talent entering the National Football League. Um, That said, um, if Zeke Elliott turns out to be as big of a bust as Trent Richardson has been in his few years in the league. um, I'd be shocked. I, I, I will, uh, I'll I'll take the, uh, the podcasting microphone here and throw it in the lake because I'm officially done at that point. (laughs) Yep. I'm with you. I guess who, who do you want the Browns to take? Man, I just I Zeke was the guy that was the most intriguing to me, and I hate falling into that camp of like, oh, just take the Ohio State guy. And I'm if anything, I almost I have an aversion to Ohio State players because I feel like we could never truly fairly evaluate them because we're fans of that team as college players. But I just I think he's an electric player, and I feel like you need playmakers and um. The whole Paxton Lynch thing to me is really interesting. Um, and whether it's at pick number eight or if they trade down a little further and would maybe get him there at another point in the first round. Um, 
I think that's something to keep an eye on too. I wouldn't count out drafting at eight and trading back up into the first to get him either. Because that's worked out so well for the Browns in the past. Yeah. And I know I'm, I'm falling right into again, the trap. I'm telling again, everybody else don't again. don't do. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> exactly, you got to let this this regime do what they think is best. You can't hold the sins of the of the past against them. Well, well, the ghost it, of, it, uh, Joe Banner is haunting them right now. Hey, Joe Banner is the smartest guy in the room, and if you're not sure, just ask him; he'll tell you. But, exactly. Uh, do you Although, do, do you follow him on Twitter? I do. I actually like him. I think he's a great follow on Twitter. I I do too. But my guy, that guy, he uh, he is not lacking for uh, self confidence. And yeah, but step into any NFL front office, find me a guy that doesn't think he's good at his job. If he's got it all figured out like that, though, um, you'd think he'd have a gig. And not have so much time to be on Twitter. Yeah, but I guess uh, after you, you robbed the Browns for three years. Um, Still cashing the checks. You don't need to go back to work, exactly. Getting that uh, that pilot flying J money from uh, from the Haslams. Yeah. Well, it, uh, it, it's our Super Bowl. It's Thursday night starting. And then, um, you know, the, the bulk of the Browns picks will really uh, come into play on uh, probably Friday and Saturday as the, the last two days of the draft roll on. So... Um, as always, it'll be super interesting and, uh, I, I can't wait to see what the Browns do with this. I'm really intrigued to see what the new front office, um, what they come out, co- come away with, um, for the record and, and take what you want from, um, stories from the team website, but, uh, Sashi Brown, um, in a story today said, we're set, we're locked in and we know who we will be taking. And if that player's not there, or if we get another offer that just blows our socks off, We'll know how to react to that. So, um, if you're going to believe that to the to the last letter, it sounds like they're not going to be the ones initiating a trade talk to move down. Um, and it sounds like they definitely have somebody in mind for pick number eight. Um, kind of curious to know who that might be. If there's one thing you know about draft season, though, it's don't believe anything that a front office guy says to the media. Yeah, and that's that's why I, I, I especially when it's coming from the team website. Um, yeah, which is basically exactly. a PR tool for them, and that's exactly. fine. It serves a purpose, but um, I'm skeptical. But who knows? They, uh, I mean, he did say I, I think it was Sashi a couple of months ago. Um, he he said uh, that they were he had made an offhanded remark about not being surprised at all if they traded down out of the two spot and that's exactly what they did. So maybe he's uh, going with like a, a next level bluff of actually flat out telegraphing what they're going to do. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, I'll be honest. I, I like the way that this regime has done business so far a lot more than the past couple. Um, so it's, it's promising from my viewpoint the fact that they have a strategy and seem to be sticking to it um regardless of what you know maybe the public might think um they're they're, they know what they want to do and they're gonna try to make that happen they're gonna do everything within their power to do it even if that means doing what's not necessarily the uh the popular or sexy pick and and that's how i mean that's how franchises get get built into you know, the strong, long-running, uh, winning environments is by doing, you know, making the smart pick, not the the chic, sexy pick. And I, I hope that that's what I hope that's what we see all weekend. Honestly, well, they're going to have to make a lot of them to to dig this 
team out of the hole that um, they've created for themselves over the last few years. But uh, they're going to get their first shot at it this weekend, and here's hoping they get it right. So yep. we'll see. Absolutely. Any Absolutely. Uh, any other thoughts before we get out of here? No, I think that's about it. We should uh, maybe we'll get back together on Sunday or something. Yeah, I like that idea. Draft and preview the uh, preview the next round for the Cavs. Yeah, that uh, that sounds good to me. Oh, oh, one last thing I wanted to say. Um, shout out to the Indians. Um, yeah. I know we can't really read too much into uh, good things or bad things and and look at individual games and whatnot, but they just went up and swept the Tigers in Detroit. And after all the years that we've had to um, watch them basically be the little brother for Detroit, to see them go in there and kick their ass was really nice this weekend. And, um, you know, I know it sucks that uh, Carlos Carrasco uh, has the hamstring injury and he's going to be out, I think, about six weeks. But, um, you know, no Michael Brantley up to this point. I think he's finally back today. And, um, you know, they, they, they weathered that storm. And, uh, you know, given the way they've started some of their past uh, seasons and, and how they've kind of dug a huge hole for for themselves um, in April under uh, Terry Francona in the last couple of years, uh, to see them right now um, above the 500 mark um, at, at the end of the month here, um, nice job and, and a really nice series over the weekend. So I, I was really happy about that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we said it when we talked about the beginning of the season. Um yeah, we just didn't want them to come out slow. We don't expect them to come out and win, you know, like 15 of their first 20 or something crazy. But, yeah, you just want them to come out and play well um, and win win maybe as many games as they lose. And, yeah, watching them stick it to Detroit all weekend was incredibly rewarding for once, finally. Good job, Tribe. There you go. All right. Well, hey, on that note, uh, we, uh, we're going to plan on, I guess, trying to uh, reconvene this weekend. Uh, but in the meantime, um, you can always check out uh, old episodes of our show on our website, thenailpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Nail Podcast. Um, get the Facebook page up and running, uh, facebook.com slash The Nail Podcast. And uh, set, uh, oh, subscribe on iTunes, but uh, you already know that. Um, so, yeah, I think that covers everything, right? Uh, I think that's it. Yeah, if you haven't subscribed yet and you're still listening at 27, what are you doing? Absolutely. <laughs> Hit the subscribe button already. Get it done. And don't be afraid to leave us a review. I don't think we've actually gotten any reviews. I know we've got a nice little uh, group of subscribers, but uh, nobody's left a review on there yet. So be Unless kinda... you think we suck, in, the, in which case, just send us an email and I'll be happy to debate with you. <laughs> he will, too. I will. That, that's I not mean, an I empty promise. Tell me I suck. I don't care. All right. Well, hey, listen, uh, everybody, on that note, um, for Travis Uli, I am Tom Valentino. This has been uh, The Nail in the Coffin, and we will talk to you uh, probably this weekend. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. 
Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 